You're listening to TWN Champions, episode 36. Champions, arise! Welcome to the Champions Countdown Podcast, where we summon heroes from across space and time to populate our intergalactic museum, or something like that. This is episode 36. I'm Rebecca, and with me is a round-headed, freckle-faced, tough kid. It's Will. Let me get my slingshot and cherry bombs. (laughs) He's also a 46-year-old man. (laughs) As all children in the 50s were. Yeah, well, as we will talk about, yes. (laughs) With chronic low back pain. So, speaking of, do you have any chronic low back pain that we need to be aware of? Um, no, I am getting sleeping injuries these days, but that's probably because we need foundation repair. Yeah, that's the thing about adulthood is that it's like you've got a problem and your problem is like, well, I'm not sleeping comfortably. And you'd be like, well, do I need a new bed? Do I need a new mattress? No, your house is crooked and you need to jack up your house to make it level. I would love to do one of those sleep studies and have somebody tell you like that your house is crooked is the cause of your medical <laughs> they're problems. Like, they're like, sir, you're fine. He's like, but I can't sleep. And they're like, your house is very crooked, <laughs> sir. Are you sleeping slanty? Is that... <laughs> Like, do you wake up with one side of your face very puffy and the other side, no? Yeah, I would say I'm sleeping on a hypotenuse. That's that's what's happening. <laughs> I was, like, talking to my sister on the phone today, and, she, like, she's always really into, like, doing stuff in her house, like, projects. A lot of people really love doing projects in their mm-hmm. house, like, making it nicer. And I was just trying to explain to her how it's like, I hate my bathroom floor, but... I'm just not going to do anything this about is where it. We live. This is the cave we found. We live here now. <laughs> yeah. paint, your, paint your bison on the walls. Make your fire. Your yeah. bones go here. Yeah, your bones. Put them in a pile. That's fine. Like, I just, but that's all I, that's, I, it's, that's it. That's good. That's fine. That's it. Uh, what are we talking about today? On today's show, we will count down our personal favorite takes on the kid archetype. And we'll talk about fictional kids, for for the record. Uh, I have four. Rebecca has four. It's a top eight. Now, Will, I'm going to say this question the same way we say it every time for the show, even though it'll sound funny. What is a kid? What? What, Why don't you hit us with the history of kids for, for our podcast purposes? Okay. I thought a lot about the best way to get at this, and I had the most success when I was looking more at the beginning of children's fiction, which really started in the mid-1700s because, and you made this point to me earlier, before then, we didn't even really think of kids as people. They were just sort of like part of your family, like a pet or something. We and really we didn't, But we didn't, didn't consider them their own entity with their own way of thinking and individuals for a while. They were just begot in the Bible and myths. Yeah, and it's like they don't even enter into the dialogue until they grow up. Like, I was thinking about, you know, in Greek myth, Greek mythology has, like, tons of 
children of all of the gods, but mm-hmm. it's like they're adults by the time we see them. Like mm-hmm. the, the characters, children are a thing, but not like when they're kids. Yeah, they just had them so we could name planets. Yeah, and then like you know, like people, like okay, Telemachus goes on the Odyssey or whatever, but it's not like it's like the Odysseus Kids Club, and like there he is <laughs> hanging on the b-ball court when he's nine or whatever. Like no, uh, until like around the 1600s, we didn't really think about childhood as a distinct state that needed to be cherished i think even yeah you know, well, well, yeah. And, and, and that that's what i was saying before and before then childhood itself was pretty lame because entertainment was pretty lame the best you had were fables and fairy tales i saw one um uh english scholar calling uh children's stories in the 1600s remorselessly instructional or deeply pious so, oh, that's terrible. Until then. Oh, yeah, and you'd have to, like, read the Bible when you're a kid or if they're, like, teaching you how to read. Or what do you mean gonna... you're bored? Read your Bible. Yeah, exactly. Or they're going to, like, drill you with the catechism and that's your big entertainment for the week. I think so. It's like, do your do your math with Methuselah. That's what you, that's what you need to be that's, doing. That's grim. But we can thank one man for changing all this. He was a patent inventor named John Newberry. Who was the inspiration for the Newberry Book Award? If okay, that rings I was, a bell. I was gonna wonder. I was wondering. That was a big deal at the book fair, right? For some reason, that did have currency with kids. That did. Uh, oh, it's a Newberry Award winner. I remember thinking that too. Isn't that funny? Or it's really funny that the one like this was less prestigious, but also if you saw it was a Caldecott. Of winner, course. Because you're like, well, oh, a Caldecott. Yeah, like these are these are and, and for those librarians of you, must have talked them up, and also it, it was have. shiny. It was like a big um, Olympic medal on them. Yeah, like they would put like a big embossed gold foil seal on these books. The Caldecott Award, if you are not familiar with book fairs from the '80s, um, was it's for illustration, I believe, uh-huh. right? And the Newberry was just for like children's yeah. literature and. LeVar Burton uh, on Reading Rainbow, you know, he would mention if they were. Oh, would he? See, I'm trying to remember where I learned that the Caldecott was a thing, <laughs> but I think it really was just looking at the books, like at the library, and be yeah. like, well, I believe I'll check out this Caldecott winner. <laughs> of course, yeah. Like, I really well, did they win the Caldecott. I don't know if I can read how to draw airplanes. <laughs> so in 1744, it was a good year to be a kid because... John Newberry published a book called A Little Pretty Pocket Book Intended for the Instruction and Amusement of Little Master Tommy and Pretty Miss Polly. <laughs> and this was very exciting to kids. even well, Particular to Little Master Tommy yes, and Little Miss Polly. It did not feature wizards or vampires, but it did come with a ball for a boy or a pincushion for a girl. That covers the whole spectrum. Isn't that like just a great old-timey stuff? Then his big hit he published was The History of Little Goody Two-Shoes in 1765. That's hilarious. And that was the first children's novel. Okay. So the big deal here was that John proved that kids' books could be commercially successful, and they didn't have to be relentlessly instructional or religious, and he was also helped by the emerging middle class and other stuff like that at the time. So... I'll jump very quickly to the to the modern stuff to catch us uh, catch us up. Um, if we wanted to look at the highlights on the way to the golden age of YA around the millennium, you get some notable memoir stuff like I think you mentioned to me like the Laurel Laura Ingalls Wilder uh, stuff. Then we have the first real teenagers around World War II, so there are books like The Outsiders about real adolescents and stuff. And then there's the Judy Bloom peak in the 70s, then a lot of genre stuff in the 80s and 90s. And then finally, the big boom of the millennium with Harry Potter, Twilight, and The Hunger Games, and everything like that. And if you kind of want to think about where that comes from or why that was such a big deal, 
I saw a CNN story where there was a uh, YA scholar who captured it pretty well, I think, where they were just saying it made sense because adolescence is like that state between childhood and adulthood, which is basically like being trapped between two worlds, you know, like the fantastical and the real or whatever. And they, there's a lot of interplay with that in those books, I, I think. Okay. That it, it works. Yeah, th- yeah, that works. Another sort of factor that I was wanting to kind of tie in here is that, like, I, I know we, we've talked about this before, like uh, Dickens was a source uh-huh. of, of, like, kids being present in characters and you know we talked about how tiny tim was like maybe the first cute character because we were supposed to feel pity for him well you know he also wrote about the world of like chimney sweeps and stuff like that yeah i remember being really into uh, great reading great expectations i liked that a lot yeah yeah and that was a whole thing and then i mean i'm sure i know i read oliver twist but i remember the movie a lot Uh more so thanks books street urchin types (laughs) yeah sympathetic street urchin types sympathetic street urchins and i just it's just been an interesting interplay as society has sort of progressed like those kids were because of the world thrust into adulthood early Uh and one might make the argument that an extended childhood um, is really a sign of progress, yeah, human progress. He, yeah, because there was no space for that age to to really exist as a developmental phase. Yeah, because you were just like nine, and then they're like, this is your last carefree year, and then it's like, next year you'll be married, and you'll get the the next field yeah. over to plow for your own. <laughs> like, it's just depressing. You're nine now, time to avenge your father and kill a man. <laughs> yeah, like, time to go work in the mine with your daddy, <laughs> yeah. until one of you dies, probably be you. I mean, you know, it, it's, I mean, I'm, you know, we're making light of it, but it's, you know, it's, it's pretty grim when you uh-huh. think about it, that like childhood actually is very much something we should look at as sacred. And I think we're making great strides, even in like the past 10 years or so to really recognize childhood and adolescence as a time to develop and grow. And I guess in a very lighthearted way, I want to pay tribute to all the the, the great kid characters out there. Maybe, or- yeah. And I think these these kid characters are, you know, like we saw with the birth birth of the uh, uh, children's fiction or, or YA fiction, um, are kids who are treated as legitimate kid characters. They're not just like um, plot devices or, you know, they should they had they had the perspective of actual kids in in the stories. Yeah, or there there is something special about the the kid perspective, and it's a lot more nuanced than just children are not innocent and it's a carefree time. It's like no, but there is something unique about a a kid or young person perspective, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, and that's kind of where I was at, where my head was at when I was doing my picks. Okay, were well, you ready for the first one? Number eight. My first pick is a kid named Will, who some say is the best, bravest, most handsome boy in the world. Is this a story about little Will? No. No. This who Will is doesn't it? happen to be me, but he is a lot like me. Uh-huh. This is the hero from a video game called Illusion of Gaia. Ooh. Uh, so this game came out for Super Nintendo in 1994, and it's set in an alternate history that's like the age of exploration in the 16th century. And Will 
is the survivor of his father's sea journey to uncover the secrets of the Tower of Babel. He shows up in a town with no memory, and he solves a mystery by visiting all the wonders of the world where there happen to be monsters and stuff. But the hook is that he can visit these locations called Dark Spaces, where a tentacle goddess lets him transform into either a knight or a shadow creature with special powers. Ooh. Um, I'm loving the premise even as, as I read it. No wonder. Yeah. It sounds like something I would just I just made up for my own delight. I love it. Uh, <laughs> but the thing that I think is so special about uh, the character in this game is that they nailed it with this kid because I love the character even though I shouldn't have. In the 90s, remember, this was the age of extreme oh, where yeah. you love everything with guns and knives and pouches and saying awesome stuff. Um, it was, and you're drinking Surge yeah, when that yeah. comes out. Yeah, when this, that comes out. This is out. a little before yeah, we're, Surge. we're doing the do if we have to until then. Yeah. Uh, but they, <laughs> Back then, we did the do for we did not know that a Surge was to happen. Yes. Surge was to occur. But they made you really like this kid because they nailed exactly what it was like being a smart kid where you see the real world, but it's kind of canted and fantastical. And it's also strange and hard because there aren't a lot of guides like there are now to explain things or solve the puzzles for you. And we talked about Nintendo strangeness before, right? Like, oh, yeah, I, I, that, that's one of the things that's just so hard to explain and capture. Like there wasn't all this context and media hype and other things for us to get used to. It's just very odd. You just took a chance on it at the store and brought it home. And you're like, what is this? I mean, this is crazy. None of your friends would have had this because it's not Mario. I mean, it was just so odd. And I mean, the development teams were not what they are today. So yeah, it's not homogenized. Yeah, like, like all these yeah, different. Yeah, I was going to say like culturally, I know that they were very much more in the in the um, vein of whatever culture that it originally came from. So like a lot of the Japanese developed games very much had that sensibility. Yeah. It felt uh, like a little bit familiar, but kind of strange too, which like all great art was, which is why those Japanese games were so good. So you take a risk on a crazy rental like this uh, and, and you, and you could get something really magical like that. And that was another thing about this game is that it was hard. I was like 11, but I was so proud that I beat it on my own without any guides or anything. And there were things you had to figure out. Like, I remember I was so proud that it was this little windy passage I couldn't figure out how to get out of for days. And I would spend hours just walking through until one time I saw Will's hair blowing at one point. Oh. Or there was like a wind coming through the cave and there was a weak spot in the wall. And I, I just, I mean, I was just like on cloud nine when I figured it out. Like, well, you're 11. That's a big deal. That is a big deal. And you, when you beat it, I remember beating it. And your parents just think you're in your, in, you spend all summer in your room playing video games. But when I come out, it's like, you can't just talk to me like normal. I've been through something. <laughs> you know, like I beat this. Like this is a, this is a big deal. Um, you know, like, I can't go eat a hot pocket Exactly. Now. Exactly. Like you, you don't know what, you know what I've been through. And, and then, you know, also I think there's a good little metaphor there with the different personalities you get to try on like the knight or the shadow creature or whatever, you know, when you're a, when you're a kid. Oh, yeah, you're, which one am I? Yeah. Who am I? Uh, you know, so, you know, in the whole game, I, you know, I'll, even, I know it's old, but I'm not going to spoil the end of it if you get an emulator or something, but it's a really neat little metaphor about growing up. Uh, and it was sort of a bittersweet ending too, or whatever, like some of the Final Fantasy games are. And it was just a really special little thing and made a, kid get behind being a kid instead of it being like an um awesome sword cussing man you know and it was it was just really cool 
And to prove how much I like that game, you know that's where my ratty t-shirt came from. Well, yeah, you still have the t-shirt, right? It came with the video game cartridge, yeah. Yeah, yeah it is pretty ratty. <laughs> yeah. But that's okay, you should keep it. <laughs> Seven. Jason, I'm not going to hurt his feelings. Well, also, he's very fragile, okay? I think I know him a little better than you do. Well, I don't... Okay, good news. Huh. I tapped into a very creative part of my brain last night. That sounds awful. Uh, Brenda, did you use a drill? No, I used a dream. <laughs> Brendan, that's poetic. Thank you. He's a filmmaker with a gentle soul just trying to make his way in the world. And he's also eight years old. And that is young pretend Brendan Small in the animated series Home Movies that ran from 1999 to 2004. Mm -hmm. This is an er early big adult swim deal before it became the juggernaut that it was. Mm -hmm. We're big Brendan Small fans too. Yeah, but for me it's mostly because of Home Movies. Okay, Uh so I'm going to try not to be too obnoxious about this because I do want to talk about the character. But I do need to give a bit of background about the show Home Movies, especially if you haven't watched it. I got some good info about the show from an article on Bubble Blabber from a guy named Daniel Curlin, so just shout out, uh, who did some digging into the history of the show. So this animated series is very weirdly drawn because they were doing early Flash animation. Um, it got a little better as it went on. But so this is the Squiggle Vision, right? Squiggle the Vision, same yeah. Dr. Katz people. Yes, and it was the same people because that was Lauren Bouchard. And uh-huh. that was like where he went. He went, he had a big hit with adults, you know, in um, on Comedy Central with Dr. Katz. And then he brought that same thing over at the end of, at the end of the century uh-huh. with uh, home movies. And uh, this was a very like, it, just like Dr. Katz, if you ever saw that one in the 90s, a really subtle, dry humor show. This is a very heavily improvised animated series, and it was basically the spiritual predecessor of Bob's Burgers. And, uh-huh. um, and I'm going to sort of tell, yeah, tell yeah. you why. That, that was the argument of this guy who wrote the article. And basically, this was a crudely done sort of dry run of a lot of the things that wound up making Bob's Burgers so successful, because it's a similar kind of humor. You know, um, it heavily features a lot of the same voice actors. And it's really the show that cemented H. John Benjamin as this powerhouse of voice acting. Uh Who, of course, I think now we would all recognize, like, you know, he's a big deal partially because of Bob's Burgers. But it was his run as the character Coach McGurk on on the show Home Movies that actually made him just get into that and and, uh it's a fantastic role also i mean Uh he's great in it but he's also this hilarious foil for the very gentle brendan who is our main character in home movies um because of course h john benjamin is being very much himself as coach mcgurk and just being that brash obnoxious say whatever he wants to say not embarrassed about himself at all person whereas brendan is like a little more shy resolved a little self-conscious but you know and just a little struggling you know brendan what the hell are you doing out there get over here <sighs> your head in the game brendan what is your head in the game brendan uh, i think so you look like you're daydreaming out there yeah well i have a big science test coming up so what so what yeah so what so this what? is a soccer game oh do your science test in science class play soccer out here on the soccer field Hey, Coach, do you think I'm stupid? Of course you're stupid, Brendan. Okay. All kids are stupid. Every single kid out here is stupid. 
Yeah. Now, why Brendan is on my list particularly. So, first of all, I just think this is a hilarious show. And I think you should watch it. It's a great show to put on in the background. Every show, every episode of that show was great. Uh, the, the show follows him and his friends as they make films all the time. They're just making movie after movie. And every episode, they're making a different movie. I think a lot of us can relate to the way that you wholeheartedly can pour yourself into projects and activities when you're a kid. And like, I don't know about you, but that's a very big cherished part of my childhood memories mm-hmm. and my adolescent memories. Like we used to make films, you know, when, especially like when I was a little bit older, but like I used to love doing that. And I used to love that sort of spirit and attitude where you can just kind of get into something like into the day. It's like, Hey, let's make a pretend restaurant under the kitchen table. And then like you just do it and that's just what you do all day. And it's just, you're completely immersed and you're just completely present and you're completely unselfconscious. That is like the spirit of little Brendan small in this movie. And I mean, in this, on the show. And that's what I really, really like. Um, I just feel like throughout our lives, we learn somewhere to start being self-conscious about our efforts. And like we start, doubting ourselves and I just really think that there should be a little nugget of you that you carry around with you that is bad at making movies but does it anyway yeah and I you know you you will you end up learning to come full circle later if you do creative things where you have to learn the mechanics of how to play uh, because you need to access that type of brain to be able to come up with things you can't just be all analysis you have to be able to yeah uh, let that side of your brain work things out, you know, for improv or joke writing or creative writing or anything like that. So it, it's important to be able to access that part of your brain still. Yeah. And, and I, I, sadly, I think a lot of people who are otherwise very creative, very hilarious people, they won't play enough. No. Um, you know what? I mean, this is kind of weird and personal, but we talked about this before. I, I have noticed at work that, otherwise very smart people that I just genuinely enjoy don't aren't used to playing with people like in conversation like you just can't raise a premise and do a funny voice or impressions or or anything or like that. build a mythology in your work chat yeah yeah or yeah <laughs> and, and they just don't know how to run with a joke and they just look like you like it you like you're an alien I was like yeah look at me like they all they want that's funny that was funny right. in any room in the world that would be hilarious because they just in their lives like the town that they are the social class that they are the type of proper that they are they just they just won't play it's alien it's like if this was on tv you would be laughing this right. is funny i but mean i have the- like a couple of friends at work who are like that but they get treated like aliens too it's just very odd and it is very odd and like i i will also state for the record that some of my favorite human beings on planet earth are people that i just love to play with who are just mm-hmm. funny you have you- to be smart to be able to do that well yeah and you also have to be a little unselfconscious because you have to be the person who walks into the room and just says i'm gonna set the tone mm-hmm. and it's gonna be a playful one and y'all can join me or you can just be a bummer i don't care but it's the same thing with like improv whatever you have to be, you have to be able to listen and find out what the tone is and understand the consistency of the characters sure. and, the and all that stuff so i mean like i just i really just wish that everybody felt more comfortable with that playful attitude yeah. and and have a good time making something for no good reason, right? And that's just, that's the spirit of little Brendan. And I just feel like that's something we should all carry with us. Why, why do you want to, want to be a lifeguard? For the money, Brendan. I don't think they get paid that much, coach. Number six. 
hear you got a rotten tooth. I got a sore tooth is all, Roger. I bet you're scared to get that thing fixed. Cut it out, Roger. You mean yank it out, don't you, funny? <laughs> this kid is probably not the hero, but his story might be way more interesting. This is Roger, the bully, from the Nickelodeon cartoon called Doug. Well, I'm glad you got a good bully on the list because kid bullies are very important figures. Yeah, I love and I'm fascinated by all the kid bully stories. And I know the show Doug in particular was popular, but I find that a lot of people didn't watch it because they were either too young or too old, or maybe you were already grown up in the mid-90s. Yes. Yeah, were you already drinking coffee by this time? I I mean, well, I drank coffee (laughs) as a little child, but yes, no, like, no, that that was one of those shows that just, it caught me just right on the wrong side of it. And you grew up faster than I did. Yeah. Um, And so so I think that makes sense. But even if you didn't watch it, you know somebody like Roger. And, man, I I really wanted to talk about this, but I could talk the whole show about this. Um, And I decided how personal I want to get about this. But he was such a good character because he was, I think, the most realistic bully I've seen on TV. What we usually see is, like, beefy buzz-cut guys giving wedgies or beating kids up in the hall or something like that. But what really happens is you spend a lot of unsupervised time with kids who are totally fine and funny, and you get along with them until you don't. And they have a really cruel streak or mean turn, Mm -hmm. depending on who's in the room or how they feel that day or what's been happening at their house, and they terrorize you. And that is how bullies really are yeah. in school when you're a kid. Um, and it is it is like more insidious than... Yeah. than I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that the obvious physical stuff doesn't happen, because clearly it does. I mean, a lot of people have experiences with that kind of bullying. But yeah. it is a lot of it is like the psychological bullying. Yeah. Um, and so I'll talk... I'll back up and talk about Roger for a minute. And I want to get... I want to return back to this. Um, okay. If you want to be personal, also, I, I remember there was a girl on my school bus who was like one or two grades of, oh, over me. I don't even remember. Mm-hmm. And she used to just turn around in her seat and just look at me and she would just be like you are so ugly you are so ugly yeah i remember that kind of stuff just all stuff the time like that you know what i mean and it's really it's funny crazy. too it was crazy especially because even at the time i was like i didn't even internalize it very much because like you know if i was a little auburn headed freckle faced kid as i was like she looked just i mean she was also a red-headed freckle faced <laughs> kid i'm not even she was a red-headed freckle faced bully That's so obviously that stuff comes from i know and I'm just like, I was like, I'm ugly. You're like ugly squared. Like, I mean, you know what I mean? It was just so weird. And I even remember thinking it was weird. And I even remember thinking like, why is she doing that? Man. But like, yeah, that's that's the kind of just casual cruelty that like a, a, a kid will bully you with yeah, when you're that's, that age. That's interesting. And, and, and as I talk about this too, let's think about the different flavors you would see between girls and boys. Because the boys one looks a little bit different. But that that's really interesting. I hadn't considered what a girl bully looks like. So Roger... She was redheaded and freckle-faced. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Roger wears a leather jacket and has beady eyes and does a lot of pointing and is always right on the edge of not being okay. And then suddenly he isn't, which makes it a lot harder to know how to handle it. That That's why this is more insidious because if you respond, you look like you're overreacting. But if you don't, they will eat you alive. Yeah. And so it's really confusing about what to, what to know what to do. And it's a whole story. But I had a bully like this. And it's pretty funny now. But at the time, it was terrible. We got stuck together 
through school and scouts and stuff. And I got a lot of mixed messages on how to handle him. A lot of unhelpful, y'all need to work it out type stuff. And a lot of, you need to just punch him one time type stuff. Yeah, yeah, that was really floated to us a whole lot there when we were so kids. There was so much confusing stuff. And so this was also the era when my dad investigated fighting lessons for me because I was having trouble and he was talking about, you know, Jack Raymond, he's, he's another kid, kid older than me. Jack Raymond, I talked to his daddy, he wears out a pair of shoes every month. That, the kid wearing out the shoes real fast is like the funniest child mythology I have ever heard. That was proof to dad. He understood what that meant. Yeah. He, he just runs hard. Um, and then and then he was, my dad was like, uh, had those balloons in my room with the, with then there's like Sharpie on my desk. And he's like, you know, if I were you, I'd just draw a picture of your bully on them balloons and give him a little punch every now and then. <laughs> you know? It's just like old timey so how to well handle a bully. It was so well-meaning, too. Yeah, I know, because that's how, how you would handle it. But it, but this ty- these type of so bullies funny. were different. And, and and your dad was such a gentle son. Yes, Your yes. dad, I don't, ha- did he ever in his entire life get into a physical fight? No, because he was incredibly popular and beloved. Yes, and very <laughs> charming and very much like a laugh your way out of a situation and kind I of And I was person. pretty good about that, too. Yeah, so that's just so funny, too. It's like, because like that, you know, men of um, our parents' generation, I guess, just really didn't know Because for to- them, they thought bullet, they thought it was going to be like a Norman Rockwell 50s kind of like, yeah. I'm going to give him a, a one little pal and he'll have a black eye and then we'll ask if we want to go fishing together. You know, that's what he thought it was going to be like. Yeah. No. So there's so much to talk about here and I have mixed feelings and sharing a lot of the details, but I will say that me and this bully did end up fighting and it did kind of work. And now we know each other really well and get along great because we are related, <laughs> but I can't say that it was the right thing to do right? because one of us could have really gotten hurt in that fight because, because, and this is also important, you can't really explain how to, to kids how hard to go in a fight. I mean, it was real weird and it was hard to believe that it happened and it was wild. And I remember having tons of like, uh, hormone surge when it happened and stuff. And it, it was just crazy. And I think it's because, we just get so many mixed messages by how to handle bullies. In case in point, in the show Doug, there were like three episodes I saw where Doug has to deal with a bully and they each have a different message about how to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And that's probably why I remember this so clearly. Like somebody punches Roger in one. One of them, Doug, um, ends up getting pressured into fighting somebody and then they have some crazy ending that doesn't even make sense. Um, there, there was one where Doug has to fight Roger. I mean, it was just all over the place. And so this was just very realistic and I, it just stuck with me so much. And it's just like a perpetual part of your of your life yeah. too. It's just like this this thing that's just in the background and it's just they're always there. I know. And and I think it's also really interesting to capture because I don't think schools and grown-ups let this kind of situation develop now like they used to. We were like the last generation where parents just opened the door and we lived wild until it was time to have dinner. Yeah, and I really feel like that was like our own parents' failings of not being able to communicate. If I had a child that was having difficulties with another child, 
my ass would be marching over the door, knocking on the door, talking to the entire parent, like, we're going to have a discussion. Like, mm-hmm. we're going to talk about this. Yeah. And that was just wasn't done when we were kids. Yeah, we, you really didn't. You just thought it was like something you just you just work itself out. And it, no, it doesn't. It just doesn't work like no, that. No, they they need strange. a guided discussion. And if and if the parents are turds, then that's when you have to start doing other things. Yeah. To you know other means of of addressing the situation. But like yeah. These days, that does not fly. Yeah. And so, like I say, it's a long story, and there are tons more hilarious details. If you talk to me on the right day, I will share with you. <laughs> but um, like I say, the the happy ending is he and I get along great now, and that guy's hilarious, and uh, it's hard to believe it happened. But it's a really interesting, weird, weird little thing that happened. And knowing who it is, why did your parents and his parents not get together and have a talk about oh, it? Oh, I don't Repressed, know. Repressed, you boomers and your repressed emotions. Because you were not allowed to grow up with problems. I wonder, I guess. I don't I wonder even know. if our generation was just meaner in a different way. I think maybe they just didn't really have an idea of what it was like. I maybe don't know. not. Maybe not. Who's to say? <laughs> Why don't you grow up, you big baby? Excuse Number five. Ellen, where have you been? Where's the QED report? Rose, I, I tried... Ah, yes, the QED report. I have that for you, Rose. What are you doing with it? Sue Ellen, what is Carolyn doing with it? Kathy Henderson brought it by. It seems she's been covering for Sue Ellen, doing her work for her. You let Kathy do the QED report? Uh-huh. I was wondering how you were going to get that and the research for the school presentation done. Bravo, you really know how to delegate responsibility. Carolyn, you want to be executive material? Keep an eye on Sue Ellen. You, you are a paragon. Now, you may quibble with me about whether this is truly a kid, because it's a teenager, but for my purposes, I think this really does matter, because I am thrilled to talk about one of my very favorite movies of all time, as I talk about Sue Ellen, the protagonist of the 1989 film, Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead. Played by Christina Applegate. If we're talking about judging a movie by how good it is, by how many times you can watch it, that is one of the films I would say, it doesn't matter how many times you put it on, it is good every time. It is good every time. It is one of my most beloved films, just in in my life, period. I'm right on top of that, Rose. So the plot of this film is that Sue Ellen her butthead brother Kenny, and younger siblings, whatever their names are, they're all left at home for the summer by their very well-meaning but neglectful, emotionally distant yuppie mother. (laughs) And they're left with an evil old babysitter who promptly dies, and the kids all decide not to inform their mother so that they can have their freedom. Uh Uh-huh. However... And this sounds like it's going to be like a uh, cute, like, campy thing, but it is like textbook good screenwriting oh yeah after that point oh yeah it's less cartoony more just a great story after that it and and i uh, uh, it's it's one of my favorites so because they don't want to tell the mother what's happening now sue ellen is tasked with getting money to take care of the family and so she is now a kid being thrust into the role of adulthood. And uh-huh. that's why this is a great coming of age story. That is, that I is can see why you and your it. sister would have liked it a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's a real trial by fire, uh-huh. <laughs> as adulthood is. Um, so Sue Ellen has to get a job. And what she does is she fakes 
with a, a fake resume, she fakes her way into like a low tier fashion manufacturing company. And then she has to fake her way through working a nine to five office job by being smart enough to actually know when to use her real ideas and then also when to get people to do stuff for her that Uh she doesn't understand, which is also hilarious because that's the perfect metaphor for adult jobs. Yes. That's really just how it is. Nobody's qualified. Nobody's qualified. I mean, or has special qualifications. Everybody's just like, are you kind of like a went to college office person? You can do any job here. I mean, pretty much. And then it's like, if you are intelligent, you can figure out how to do what you don't know how to do. And it, and you know, and for a lot of jobs, you can, you can really just have some sense and figure it out. And that's why I also think it's hilarious because she has to work the nine to five, only feeling a little bit less equipped than the actual adults were. Well, yeah. And I'm thinking about a place I have worked before where uh, they would bring in people with these insane salaries as a consultant and then just make them my unit's boss because they had to justify their salary and they would be more worthless than an intern. They had no idea what to do. Their strategic ideas were uninformed and idiotic, had no idea what we did, had no way to measure our performance. Some people would come in and interview for a job. I remember one guy came in for this job uh, that was going to be like under my boss and we asked him what um, you know what he thought was reasonable for a salary. And for this position at the time, I will tell you, in this region, the salary should have been somewhere like thirty five k. And he was like, "We're looking for about a hundred k." And we used to call him hundred k man all the time. Like, which is, I mean, which is so funny. Like, yeah, that just sounds like. Uh, the older I get, the more I realize that the lines between a proper adult and a complete flailing idiot. I mean, they're just, they're just so like every company hierarchies are based on what sort of privilege do you already enjoy? True. And we will find you the, uh, a a position to comport with the status you already have. Yes. (laughs) And then you are an insufferable eighties yuppie. Yes. Like the people in this film. Actually, that's not true. Actually, her, well, okay, ba- yeah. backing up, but but yeah, like this office culture is a hilarious and fascinating thing as an adult because it's like when you're young, I think you think that people really have it together once they're doing that, yeah. and we have found out in adulthood that that is not true. Right. There are some real hopeless individuals. So there's some great <laughs> scenes in that movie where she is like faking it until she's making it until she's eventually just doing the job. Yeah. And she gets good at it and she learned, you know, she has her own competence because she is an aspiring fashion designer and she like turns the company around Uh essentially with her fashion designs because they make like school and office uniforms. And she's like, what if they looked cool? Yeah. Like kids wouldn't wear that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And so this is a great film. If you are a fan of, um, if you are into late 80s, early 90s fashion, if uh, it's a great timepiece for office culture of the time, for like decor of the time, for teen culture of the time, Christina Applegate is adorable in the movie. Mm-hmm. And I just am very, very fond of it. And I, and, and I love when the uh, older butthead brother is like uh, shooting uh, plates off the roof. <laughs> Yes, that's what bad teens did <laughs> yeah. in the 80s. And the thing is, like, people would be like, oh, that's not real. That's like a screamer oh, thing. Oh, I could totally see us doing I, that. We, my cousins, I, like, I remember 
I mean, it wasn't shooting plates off the seat, off the roof, but like I remember going into the street right in front of my mammal's house with my cousin, and he had a skateboard, my bad cousin, and uh, trashing our new kids on the block tapes when we decided, you know, like when we decided they weren't cool anymore, like stuff like that. We shot potato guns. We shot potato guns off the top of the roof and it was very dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. There was, there was lots of like treehouse action, a lot of extension mm-hmm. cord action, a lot, just a lot of like danger. So like that wasn't even unrealistic <laughs> yeah. at the time. Like seriously, the only thing that is unrealistic is one of the butthead brothers as a sassy retort says something like, what do you know, Metallica breath? And that's the only thing in that film that was not accurate to what some like real, like who wrote that? That is terrible. That was like a punch up by a writer who thought they were cool and they did not. Anyway, but forget that. Forget Metallica breath. The rest of that movie is golden (laughs) and I love it. And I still aspire to like go to a company and take it over the way that Sue Ellen did in this film. And we'll see if I if I manage to do that. I'm I'm kind of busy. <laughs> you park it yourself, Metallica breath. Number four. Oh yes, Martha. Everybody's done a splendid job. But you know, confidentially, my dear, just between you and me, I think we have the most. <laughs> oh no, George, what on earth? Hey, Mr. Wilson, how'd you like the way me and Tommy cleaned up my treehouse? <laughs> Golly, Tommy, look. Huh? That furniture, it's got fur on it. Yeah. What happened to your furniture, Mr. Wilson? What happened to my furniture? I guess he doesn't know either. Did your mom ever hate one of your friends that came over all the time? Yeah. Not my <laughs> friend, but my one of my sister's friends. She really... I wish I could say who it was, but y'all don't know him, so it's fine. But yeah, my, yeah. Okay, I have one like that too. I remember one time he was running around the side of the house to come see me, and he was like tearing around, and my mom standing at the breakfast window. And I just heard her in the other room going, "Ooh, he's got a rat tail now." <laughs> that was like just icing. That, that was too much. That was the straw that broke the camel's back. She couldn't handle the rat tail. Okay, I can. I need to tell everybody. I don't think I've ever said on this podcast, not on this one. I did have a rat tail at one point. Was it like a little Padawan thing? No, <laughs> it was a for real rat tail. It was, I got a real sassy, sporty girl haircut uh-huh. for my hair being like longer. But yeah. I was like, I want to, let's keep the rat, let's get a rat tail. And oh, I got yeah. like, wherever I got my haircut, she was like, Fantastic Sam's, whatever, wherever it was. She's like, was oh like, yeah, we can do a rat tail. Exactly. She's oh like, yeah, I'm good at rat tails. <laughs> it was like like t- the Tennessee School of Beauty or something like that. She's like, <laughs> oh, day two. We do rat tails. Yeah, Tennessee. Yeah, Tennessee <laughs> School of Beauty. Day number two is rat tails. Day number two is rat tails. Day yeah, number yeah. three, well, how to how to tease your bangs sky high. Right. But anyway, okay. Yes, parents okay. don't like them. Okay, so they might have something in common with the man who dreaded hearing the words "Hello, Mr. Wilson." <laughs> this is Dennis the Menace from the 1959 sitcom on CBS. Oh, this is a very old school pick for you. Yes. Yeah. Before I tell you why I connect with Dennis so much, let me just say that this is such a hilarious and underappreciated show. The whole premise is that Dennis is probably like 10 or so, and he's very well-meaning, but he's also very energetic and mischievous, and he is always trying to solve a problem that no one asked to be solved, resulting in some nightmare for his old man neighbor, George Wilson. And every time George hears... Hello, Mr. Wilson. He gets exhausted because something terrible is about to happen. Now, 
you may have a vague recollection of that or this show, but if you hadn't seen it in a long time, it's so much better than you remember. Yeah. There I, re- was, I was going to say, like, I remember the terrible little 80s cartoon that they did of Dennis oh, the Oh, yes. Yeah, I was, in the comic strip. I debated whether to mention how much I hate the Dennis Menace cartoon and how different it is. I can't stand it. It used to bum me out so bad when I saw it on the Dairy Queen birthday cakes. <laughs> so What a weird buy-in that was. But anyway. Yeah. So, so here's a good example. What a dip cone. There was like one clip where George is so happy to be getting out of the house uh, with his wife and they're going on like a little picnic or something. And as soon as he closes the gate. Uh, I can hardly wait. Oh, Mr. And then Dennis comes tearing in on a little scooter. And I don't know if this was the actor's decision or not, but then Dennis just trashes his scooter, like just chucks it onto the ground. He falls out, just like rolls on the street and gets up and runs to Mr. Wilson. He's so desperate to catch him before he gets (laughs) in his car. It was so funny. But the reason I liked him is because is because he was misunderstood. And I was dealing with this a lot in elementary school the same way because I got bored easy and I talked a lot and I drew when I wasn't supposed to and I tried to make jokes and I did not know I had OCD and felt compelled to say weird things out loud. And <laughs> uh, I had a teacher who decided that I was a bad kid. And let me know it. And it was like the Twilight Zone because only here, while I was in her class at school, was I a bad kid and made to feel this way. And like, I, it was just like, it was an alien thing. It was like being trapped in a in a nightmare TV show while I was there. Yeah, that is terrible. It's so weird. And if you're trying to imagine what that feels like, it's like no matter what you do, it fits that narrative that, that she has, like, this is my first grade teacher. Like, here's a good example, okay? So we're taking a little quiz in first grade, and it's not even a challenge because all the questions are like adding two plus three. So there is no reason to cheat. And so, but we are also used to looking at each other's papers because we just spent five hours drawing and comparing our Ninja Turtle pictures to each other and stuff. And I have no concept of what cheating even is, nor do I need to because it's so easy. But I wanted to look at their papers to see if I was winning because obviously the answer is five. Who else got five? It's like, (laughs) I thought it was a game. Like, I didn't know this was like a thing with stakes and you weren't supposed to cheat. But she told the whole class, you know, that, that, you know, I'm a cheater. And then we had to pull out uh, like these study carol horse blinders because people are cheating and look at each other's papers and things like it's so strange. That is so strange. Like I am always fascinated by the types of horrible people who find their way into elementary education. And it's like, you know, like if you remember your own history of school teachers, you probably had a couple of wonderful ones, a couple of terrible ones, and the rest were Eh, and they were just eating their yogurt in the teacher's lounge, just whatever. Yeah. But like, I, there is just a personality type of of a person who loves to terrorize whatever little fiefdom they have, and they will just be horrible to children. Yeah, and and I'm trying to even think about how to be charitable to her and still make. Uh, no, that's terrible. She's just. Ter- I had a very strict first grade teacher. Like, uh-huh. she, I, she scared me. Uh huh. My mom had to have like a conversation with her because I had to have a helper on my pencil because I wasn't holding it right. Yeah, that's why you write weird now. 
five. Well, I, I, I hold it correctly <laughs> well, according I mean to the pencil corrector. Up, but... <laughs> okay, so anyway, I also have very good handwriting. You have given. incredible handwriting. It's just it's just a very interesting grip you have, I noticed. Well, okay, well, but I had to have this little device on my pencil that told you, shows you where to put your thumb, your uh-huh. forefinger, and your ring finger, and I had to put it on my pencil. And my first grade teacher told me, don't ever take this off your pencil. And I was so scared that, like, when I sharpened my pencil down to a nub, uh-huh. I was taking it literally because I was six. Yeah, that pencil must always exist. Yeah, and then I remember taking this to my mom and being like, I, you know, I don't know what to do. She told me not to take it off the pencil. And my mom was living yeah. and, like, stomped up to the school and, like, you know, had a very, very frank talk with the teacher. Anyway, I'm just saying I had, a like, a very strict first grade teacher who scared me. But, like, even she, when I'm thinking about... Um, like heading off a problem like the one that you just described. We had a thing where she explained to us about like what a test was and she had us put folders around our desks before as a thing mm-hmm. and explained before we did it that keep your eyes on the own, on your own paper. So this is a woman who like knows the drill and uh-huh. who explained to us what she was doing. And this is literally a teacher who terrified me. So the teacher that did not explain <laughs> that to you, comma, a child, comma, was severely, grossly incompetent and cruel. Okay. Well, as, as, a, rhet- <laughs> as a rhetorical so. exercise, let me even give her the benefit of the doubt and tell you why. Don't why, I hope she this is terrible. chokes on a ham sandwich. I think it's possible <laughs> that you would be tempted to have an idea of what a kid's like by how they act when they're younger or you hear them say something really crappy, but you have to remember they are a kid and don't know different until you tell them different. Right. And so I just remember struggling with this a lot when I was in first grade because it was so weird. And so like I really into Dennis the Menace. I really understood how he was always misunderstood all the time. Yeah. So poor Dennis the Menace. He just he had he was spirited. That's right. And the on the real Dennis the Menace uh, actor, he grew up to work with juvenile delinquents as an adult. Isn't that nice? It is nice. <laughs> Number three. Oh, Charlie, for God's sake, come on. It was freezing last night. That's how you get pneumonia. That's okay. Okay, come on, let's go. We're late. Your mother's in the car already. This is not very nice. (laughs) So it's a good transition. Don't pack a PBJ for my number three pick, who is none other than young Charlie from the two... 2018 film Hereditary. It's just such a good movie. I wonder if that'll always be one of my favorite movies. Maybe. It's so good and so strange. I just like it. It's like um, you know that new genre of sci of like science fiction fantasy called weird fiction. It's like a movie that's weird fiction for me. I mean, it's just so good. Yeah. Um. You know, I and I wanted a horror pick, right? Uh-huh. But I am not going to pick Danny Torrance from The Shining because that kid had zero charisma. Yeah, okay. He's fun to watch, but as a character. Yeah. No. I mean, there's nothing interesting about right. him. I did like that one that they did where he was grown up. What yeah, was oh, the Doctor Sleep. Yeah, we watched that. That yeah. was all right. That yeah. was pretty good. Yeah, yeah. That was, that was fun. Okay, anyway, yeah. Um, this was written and directed by Ari Aster and released by A24, which is now shorthand for a good weird movie. The movies we watch these days. This is an existential horror film. So I've, it's... You know, he would maybe like quibble with like, well, yeah, it's a horror movie, but, uh, but it is like that. That's 
at the very least you can say, an existential horror film. And it's a bit artsy, but it's not short on the truly horrifying. And see, I thought for a long time, because someone explained, you know, like I read an article where they talked about the symbolic thing that the film was about, Uh which was inheritance and generational curses and family trauma. It is about all of those things, but I thought it was going to be heavy handed with that. And I'm like, lived it, don't care, you know, like Uh don't want to watch it. But what I will say and not be spoilery is that I really appreciate how, yeah, it's about that stuff, but mostly he wasn't afraid to go bonkers and full out horror film in the third act. Yeah. And I really appreciate Me that. Me too. And people beat up on him for that, but I love him because of it. Because well, that is correct. a legitimate decision, not a silly decision. Correct. Correct. And y- it, your sensibilities may not uh, align with his, but it's just like a great book. I mean, it's just so so strange and supernatural and upsetting. Uh, you know, the hor- the a lot of horror is stuff that is strange and you can't explain and don't have answers for, you know, it's upsetting for that reason. And it's very line blurring too, because a lot of the stuff that happens in this film, so the, the plot generally is that there's a family matriarch who dies and in the wake of her death, the family is like finding out these weird symbols everywhere and they're figuring out this mystery that involves the family that they are only uncovering because of her death, right? What's fascinating about this movie is that uh, the lines are very blurred, and a lot of the stuff that happens to the family, this, these horrible circumstances that keep being visited upon the family, this grief and this trauma visited and revisited, a lot of it can be explained by normal things. Uh-huh. And it's only in the third act that the lines blur, and you're like, oh, it is supernatural. Cool. Because, you know, I also think it's a punk move when somebody sets up up this beautiful supernatural premise and they're like no it was a man hiding in the closet all along i'm like that's no just give me a ghost give me a demon give me a devil give me a i want a i want a monster come on do it all right So, so this is not a film for everyone but you should absolutely watch it if you are a a fan a fan of existential horror i think it's fair to say it's like a modern exorcist yeah. It's the same kind of um, brooding, legit, artsy, but legitimately scary, slow burn, supernatural sort of movie. Yes. And definitely with up. A great uh, kid actor. Great, very a, memorable, iconic kid actor. Yes, that too. Yeah, that, that I think that's a that's a great comparison. And especially because the sensibilities that have updated are reflective of like how our society has progressed. And mm-hmm. the fact that this does sort of deal in like the emotions of the family. I think that that Mm -hmm. does show a change in the sensibilities between now and then when the exorcist was there, because Uh of course that was very much also an invasion theme kind of movie where it's like, here's our nice, beautiful, happy, happy home and family. And you had to ruin it with your devil stuff. Like, like something is invading our happy home. And that's not what's at play here because the thing that's invading has just been baked into your DNA. Right. Which is beautiful in a yeah, way, yeah, if, yeah. You th- if you conceive of it that way. It's really cool. And I'll just talk very briefly about Charlie. In the script, Charlie is very symbolic and pivotal character for spoilery reasons. So that's the real reason for my pick. Uh-huh. But I also just want to say, like you said, how much I appreciate um, the actor who played who played Charlie. Um, her name's Millie Shapiro. It was her first film role. Uh-huh. She has very striking looks, and she's she is a fantastic... She's fantastic in the role. Mm-hmm. Um, 
in the film, Charlie presents as a classic weird kid doing weird kid things, like making weird little sculptures in class and then like attaching a dead bird head and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So she's doing all this great creepy she kid has, like, stuff. Those safety scissors cutting a dead bird's head off. And yes, stuff. it's and it's and it's like very. She's like eating a chocolate bar at her grandma's funeral, just standing over the casket eating a chocolate bar. And, like, yes, and 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 so the characterization is just fantastic. Oh, and her big thing. Was uh, she had this really upsetting tick where she'd make this clicking noise? She'd go, yeah. Like, oh, it was so scary. It, it's oh, uh, it's really it's really well implemented in the story, and I really do think that this young performer really rose to the occasion with this this role in particular. And this is in a film of heavy hitters because this is Tony Collette yeah. at at a should have gotten an Oscar Absolutely. level of performance, like just amazing. So uh, I'm saying, if you're in a weird mood, just go for it. Yeah. Ooh, and I'm going to say this so you remember it while you're editing. And for everyone else out there, I was reading an interview with Ari Aster, the director and screenwriter, and he was talking about a movie that he had watched recently. He was like a handful of movies that he thought were very good. And he mentioned a Korean film called The Wailing. I heard, yeah, I saw that. I okay, seen it's it on yet. Hulu. Let's watch it because okay. if he thinks it's good, it's probably real good. Okay. And you know, on like Hulu or Netflix, when you're like scrolling through horror films, you don't know what's amazing <laughs> and what's like a, you know, like a complete piece of crap because yeah. like they're all called like The Wailing. Right. Yeah. You know, I don't know if the wailing is the same thing as like, you know, like the haunting of Elk Lodge 44. Right. Like, That's know, a great example. Yeah. Like what? I don't, which one of these is good? I don't know. I don't have time to try them all. But anyway, let's also watch that. Okay. Everybody watch the wailing and then tell me how it was. Number two. Come on out. Time for the magic show. All right. You can't come out. Why not? Because I said so. It's my party, and I get to say who could watch my magic show and who can't. You can't come to my magic show. I had some magic of my own. I don't know if this was an accident or an issue I apparently need to deal with, but following the misunderstood kid theme, (laughs) this is a trashy movie, but it is so good. This is Junior, the kid from Problem Child 1 and 2. (laughs) Those are some weird movies. I don't mean to sound defensive right off the bat, but these movies are so good. I've been saying a lot of movies are good, but they are so funny. Like, I mean, I know they're trashy, but... If I mean every scene in them, I was like, "Dang, that was good. Pretty good script." Uh, uh, the premise is that John Ritter is a really sweet man, but his crappy father-in-law thinks he's too nice and won't sell him the business. And so John Ritter and his wife can't conceive, so they adopt this kid who they don't know was a nightmare at the orphanage, and that's Junior. It's got a lot of heart, but sometimes they go a little bit cartoonish with how bad he is to make it funnier. Like, yeah, I think because they wanted it to appeal to whole families and they wanted yeah. kids to be able to watch this movie with their parents. But there was a lot of stuff for the parents. I would say it's kind of like, uh, I would say it's almost like an Adam Sandler movie in tone, maybe. Uh-huh. Yeah, um, I can see that. It's it's a little surreal and kooky. Yeah, yeah, but it's a grounded when it needs to be. It sort of has that Simpsons rubber band reality thing. But um, like there's a scene where... The orphanage junior is secretly writing a letter to the bow tie killer. 
And he's like saying things like, I think we got a lot in common. Your number one fan, Junior. <laughs> I mean, it's so funny. But, uh, I mean, it's got Gilbert Gottfried. I mean, uh, anyway. Again, he's misunderstood. And John Ritter really makes the movie special because he won't accept that this kid is just bad. He's just never gotten a fair shake. And so when someone mistreats Junior, Junior gets revenge in an absurd and very satisfying way. And again, for all the reasons I discussed earlier and more, I think I was going through this and I found it very empowering to see all his <laughs> pranks. Um, here were some of the pranks that uh, that were some of my favorites. Uh, at the little girl's birthday party where the little snotty girl was mean to him, uh, he decides he's going to get his revenge. And by the way, he's as a costume party, so he's dressed up like the devil with a little mustache. It's really cute. <laughs> so he starts like cutting her her birthday banner. He pops her balloons. He runs the water hose in there. He puts frogs in the punch, and they have they keep cutting to him just tossing present after present into the pool. Um, it's just so funny. Uh, and they insult his st- adopted dad when he's playing baseball. Oh no! And so when he hits the ball. He doesn't drop the bat and he just <laughs> makes all the bases swinging at all the kids. <laughs> which That's is a, a good great gag. gag. That's a good gag. It's very funny. And so, to that point, when it first came on, like every scene, I was like, I could not believe how funny it was. Like, are you seeing this? Are you seeing this? He's not dropping the bat. And Gilbert Gottfried's so good in those scenes. Um, and you know, the kid looked exactly like one of my friends. He wasn't like one of these like LA casting kids. He was very good. Um, he has a little bow tie. He's so iconic. Um, I don't have a lot to add, but I just, I think it's a great misunderstood, very satisfying little role. I love problem child one and two. The girl problem child who he teams up with is just as good. They're so (laughs) funny. It's such a good movie. I have nothing intellectual to add here other than it's <laughs> a great movie. watch Problem Child. Yeah. We'll watch The Wailing, and then we'll watch Problem yeah. Child as a palate cleanser. So good. Dear Bowtie Killer, how's prison? There's a nice picture of you on the front page that I'm going to add to my collection. Oh, mentions. Okay, you already got a Star Trek kid, so it's my turn. I'm gonna, and we already talked about Nog, so I got to do uh, Jake Cisco. Okay, and you, I was briefly flirting with the idea of doing Alexander as a pick. He's so good. <laughs> He's really more of an anti-pick, though. I, I guess uh, except for in DS9 when he came back uh, as a crew member on the oh, Re- no, no, no. On we're, the about, we're talking about child Alexander, who's the worst. I want somebody to be impressed that I knew Alexander ship the Ritaran. So anyway, <laughs> everyone be very yes. Impressed. But Alexander was so was so so hilarious in in TNG. Okay, so this this is uh, the Star yeah. Trek kids. Okay. I'm going to say the uh, troubled teen from the Marvel Comics New Warriors named um, Speedball. Um, okay. I liked him. <laughs> okay. Um, I'll say the creepy adult mind child from Dune, Aaliyah, and then uh, Monster Girl from uh, Invincible, which it just uh, has the cartoon show on Amazon Prime now. Okay. And then to that, I'll just add Little Chrissy from the John Waters film Pecker. That was a great one. Yeah. It was going to be a pick, but. <laughs> okay. Well, who's the number one child of all time? Number one. Let me put it to you straight. We're not here to get you. But you've got to understand, you're in junior high now. This goes in the computer, on your record. Hey, Gina, what are you looking at? Nothing. Brandon, I can't be your girlfriend. 
I'm in love with someone else. Who? Steve Rogers. In high school. Who's Steve Rogers? Well, Steve Rogers is only like one of the most popular guys in class. Steve. You will fall in love with me. You will take me away from this place. Dawn. Now, this is an existential horror pick in a completely different way. Because I now pay tribute to the iconic, the classic, the amazing Dawn Wiener from Todd Solondz's very grim yet wonderful little film from 1995, Welcome to the Dollhouse. Okay. Okay. You and I have never watched this movie together, have we? We have. We we have? Mm -hmm. We've watched all movies together. I just don't remember. I think when uh, we were dating long distance, one time when I drove to Tennessee, we watched this. That, that is funny that you remember we, that. One of these movie rentals. Yeah. <laughs> one of the one of the Hollywood video yes. <laughs> excursions. All right, so so Todd Solons, if you aren't familiar with him, his whole artistic jam was slash is to make intensely uncomfortable films. Uh-huh. Okay. He is like a filmmaker, you know, like that kind of a deal. And I will say, just as, this is just my opinion, uh, this was his finest hour, and I feel like his whole zhuzh is not as brilliant as perhaps people give him credit for it. Yeah, being. I think I think uh, until the end of the nineties, uh, shocking people had more artistic value than it does these days. Yeah, because now it's just like, what are you trying to prove, Edge Lord? Right. You know what I like? Whatever. I mean, and whatever. I do appreciate. I do appreciate some of the nuance of, of some of the, the other things that he's done. Mm-hmm. But so this, this is one of the ones that holds up really I, well. I, I think so. Cause I feel like this also wasn't just dark for darkness sake. Right. And he accidentally made something great when he made this character, Dawn Wiener. Um, here we get a protagonist who is maybe the most relatable yet horrible adolescent in cinema history. This is just a film about her life. She's like in middle school. It's uh-huh. a miserable life. Her family isn't interested in her. Uh, she has a geeky older brother and a cute younger sister, both of whom are like the apples of their parents' eyes. And she is uh, completely overlooked as a middle child. She's relentlessly bullied at school. And it's not like she has a heart of gold underneath it all. Like, all of this treatment in her life has made her, like, spiteful, bitter, a little bit hateful, mean. Yeah, you don't grow up like Cinderella if you are, like, neglected and abused. If you're neglected and (laughs) abused and bullied, like, you don't, you know, you're not like, please, sir. Like, no, like, it will make make you hardened. It Mm -hmm. will make you... Exhibit and act out of, yeah. because of it. And you'll exhibit what has been brought upon you. Like uh-huh. you're not going to just like be, oh, I'm actually very sweet and wonderful. And, you know, she's like mean to her little sister and it's very funny. And she's like mean to her only friend. But of course, the thing is, because no human being is purely one thing. Uh-huh. She also just has this incredible vulnerability to her. She wants to be loved and recognized but at the same time, she's got this little bit of grandiosity attached to her as well. So this is like the perfect storm of adolescence. She's, you know, hardened, hateful, wants to be loved, but also thinks she deserves amazing things based on a track record of like nothing. Uh-huh. You know, like this, this is like adolescence in a nutshell. Um, and she doesn't realize that all these hurdles in between her awkward, mean, little adolescent self and this amazing life that she thinks should, she should be living 
should exist. So in a way, she's kind of like this heroic figure because it's like almost that weird optimism that I was talking about earlier when I talked about Brendan Small, when I talk about you create unselfconsciously because you don't know that you should be self-conscious about it. Dawn Wiener just thinks that she should be living a beautiful life as the lover of her her brother's hunky lead singer of a band friend. <laughs> You know, she's she's just in her mind living this life where she is something. And I think that that is, there's just something very beautiful about that because her reality is grim. Her prognosis is not great. <laughs> but there's just like this weird little twerpy hope in adolescence that we all have that we are going to be special shooting stars, bright stars in the world. And uh, holding on to that little nugget where Which you can be, but not, but they act like it's just innate exactly. and inevitable. Exactly. But that little, that little bit of grandiosity, that little bit of like that little tiny grain of sand that you can make into some kind of crappy pearl. <laughs> that is just like the defining point of, of your life then. Cause if you don't have that, what else are you yeah. going to hope for? Like, what do you have to base it on? Especially if you don't have adult role models, right? You're her older sister, and Missy loves you. I love you. You do not. I do, do not. not. You are not leaving this table until you tell your sister that you love her. You know, I will say, like I mentioned earlier, Don Wiener exists as a character in the Todd Solon's cinematic, cinematic universe, but fans tend to agree that he didn't get it right ever again, and he, he revisited the character with uh, Greta Gerwig in, like, 20... 14 2015 something like that um, in a film called wiener dog which i have not seen but i think the reception was just kind of like eh, but why and um heather matarazzo who memorably played dawn wiener in this film um didn't want to be involved and then and everybody just kind of agreed like uh greta gerwig's too good looking to have been you know dawn wiener like that's not the right actor you didn't do it like an I don't know. That was just kind of the general consensus that I read. So let's just look at this as as a perfect little thing that he happened to capture. Um, And uh, also the soundtrack title track is a bop. So welcome to the dollhouse. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's, 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 it's a, it's, it's a, I'm not going to say it's good times, but man, that's a memorable, memorable kid character. And one that I think a lot of people relate to. Are you playing with my dolls? Well, we did it again. I think, I yeah, we, we really did. I, I was surprised and did not intend to have so many uh, misunderstood uh, kids. I guess that really bothered me. <laughs> um, yeah, it still bothers you. Nobody likes to be misunderstood. Yeah, and I know? feel like there was a lot of bully bully problems at my school when it, where I went to a town that was small enough where everybody had to go to the same school. And uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of weird little things you deal with when you're kids. Yeah. That's interesting to see when they're reflected in shows accurately. You also made the point to me that uh, we kind of made a transition where in early kids' literature, we didn't really treat kids like kids, but these days we treat kids like they are fully formed, uh, wise adults, and don't and we don't get it right now either, kind of. Yeah, and so that's kind of interesting. There, I, I really do feel like there's like some adult wish fulfillment in a lot of like young characters. Yeah, there we go. And that's why you get 
you know, like, and, and some of it's just stylized, and that's why you get, like, the completely ridiculous teens and shows like Riverdale or further back, like, Glee, you uh-huh. know? It's not meant to be accurate, uh, you know, obviously, but I do think that uh, it does no one a favor to put adult sensibilities into kid characters. Yeah. And um, it, I, I, I feel like we're at a weird moment culturally with that. And it'll be interesting to see where we go. Yeah. Oh, uh, speaking of, of where where we will go in the future, uh, do you want to do you want to tell people about what we've been working on? All right, now this is we're 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 winding up TWN champions. Right. Within a matter of weeks, I think we've got a few more in us. Right. We were yeah. going to do forty. Is that correct? Do that, you want to tell people? That's right. No, I was going to say you know how paranoid and weird I am about things ending. We're not going away. To be clear, no. But th- this show we intend to do forty episodes. Yeah, we're going to. But do we f- have some things lined up. Yes. And ellipses. Rebecca now says. And and ellipses. Now we are exactly officially writing season three of Curdle Holler, which yeah. I am so excited about. Yeah. Because uh, you know, we're gonna do a full season and we're gonna start releasing them earlier in the uh Halloween season, which is to say probably later summer, early fall. Uh-huh. So like we're gonna be working on that. And after our forty episodes here, we'll take a little hiatus, but we're not gonna not be working. Right. And we'll still be um you, you know active on social media and stuff talking about Curdle Holler, among other things. Among other things. But yeah, like this is this has been a good project for us. Like we started it as a uh, COVID era quarantine thing where we're like, look, let's, you know, let's just kind of uh, have a nice touchstone here, like where we can kind of check in with people and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, and not to belabor it where I don't think it doesn't have relevance outside of this time period. I mean, I sure. think you could still listen to... Uh, you know, I, I, my hope is that it's sort of timeless, but yes, this seemed like, that seemed like a perfect time to do it. It was a good time to do it. And then also, I mean, like, you know, there's only so many you can do when you realize you've covered your bases, right? I feel like I have pretty much talked about everything I want to talk about. Not quite yet. (laughs) Or the ones that, you know, if you're you're the most important to you, those are, those are fairly, fairly fixed. We still have Three or four of these left? What are we on? 36? 36. This is 36. 36 so we got about four, four yeah, left. Yeah, we're going to do four more. Yes. Yeah. So That's I, so I didn't good. have to look at your uh, paper over your study, Carol, to see that. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, we'll still have four good ones. You know, we're not going to phone in the last ones. They'll also be good. And, and uh, so we're going to keep releasing those bi-weekly week. probably. Yeah, yeah. Like, like we've been doing. Okay. So. But Curdle Holler coming soon is the is the big news. And That's it's going to be a full thing. season. And we're really happy with... Um, the outline we have for the season. I mean, it looks pretty, it's a pretty fun idea. It's going to be good. Yeah. It's our art. It's our art that we're making. It's our art that we're making. Like yeah. my stupid music, which you can also still listen to. <laughs> yes. Tell us, tell them about where to get everything. Uh, uh, go, just go to keengarity.com. K E E N G A R R I T Y.com to listen to all of my weird music. Cause like it's got, it's on all the streaming platforms. There's links. You can find it. Keen Garrity. That's yes. me. Um, oh, and you'll also have some vi- like we're gonna you're gonna be releasing some stuff pretty soon. Yeah, I'm working on video content. Okay, like, we're gonna right record now. a performance of one of the songs pretty soon. Yeah, too. We'll I'm doing all, just doing stuff. I'm just okay. doing stuff. Man, I, I don't mean to mean to ramble. I think this is all good information though. You can find more about us on uh, social media. I never remember where this is and didn't update my script. How do people find us, Rebecca? Twitter at Wizards NS Pod. Uh huh. Okay. That's good enough. Yes, I think so. Um, For now. And we will see you in two weeks. Oh, oh. oh. Also, well, okay, we're, we're not, it's not active right now, but 
think about following our Curdle Holler account on Twitter. Yes. It is gonna, at yeah. Curdle Holler, is it not? I think so. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, if you search for Curdle Holler, we'll be the only thing there. Yeah. So anyway, just think, just consider it, because we're going to start doing like Halloween memes and stuff like that, because it's summertime, which is when I want it to be Halloween. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week when we call forth new champions. The legends they tell of a hero Facing down fears and cutting down foes There's no resemblance to what you know When your own deeds feel humble and